Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 17th, 2017, or 5, 17, 17. And we have episode 2005 for you today of the Survival Podcast. I've got another one for you on cryptocurrency, and I think a lot of you guys are really going to like this one. I think we uh, all got a lot out of the, the interview with Brandon Todd a few weeks ago, but I think for a lot of folks it was a bit over the head. So Brian agreed to come on and talk about things in more of a layman's terms. Now, don't expect it to be uh, kindergarten level because you know the concepts are high-level concepts, so they have to be spoken about at a high level. But I think this one will be a lot less programmer code type stuff and a lot more... Uh, in line with just trying to figure out how all this stuff works, what are all these different kind of wallets, what do they mean, and when people say these words, what do those words mean when they're coming out of that person's mouth? It'll be a great interview. I think you'll learn a lot from it, and I look forward to sharing this interview with you in just a moment. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors a day. Two sponsors of the day, that is. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbiz.com, to learn more. Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 2005, because the episode is 2005. Can you believe that, guys? 2005. Um, I have two from Alex Shrug today with some commentary by Southpaw Ben on one of them. I have Israel Avix, Jewish settlers from the Gaza Strip, and I have Global Warming Madness. Before we look at one of those, let's go ahead and take a look at some notable deaths this year. Pope John Paul II, age 84, septic shock after an infection. Uh, last words were, allow me to depart to the house of the Father. Rosa Parks, age 92, from Natural Causes. William Rehnquist, age 80, unspecified reasons for his death, Supreme Court Chief Justice. James Doohan, age 85, scaring, uh, scarring of the lungs probably due to chemical breathing, breathed in during World War II. Scotty on the original Star Trek series. And Johnny Carson, Don Adams from Get Smart, and Bob Denver of Gilligan's Island all died this year. This year in film, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, the best of the three prequels, even though it was quite flawed to many of us, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it did better in the box office than Alex Shrug would have expected, and also this year in film, War of the Worlds, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and Hitch. This year in TV, released, it was American Dad, Doctor Who is revived, the Office, Grey's Anatomy, Deadliest Catch, and The Colbert Report. I'd say out of all those, best one was The Office, and second would be Deadliest Catch, and the rest I really don't watch. Nothing against those of you who like Doctor Who. 
In this year in music, we had Redneck Woman by Gretchen Wilson, a fun song. Here We Go Again by Ray Charles and Noah, Noah Jones, a duet reminiscent of Nat King Cole with his daughter Natalie after he died. Hold on to that one for a second. And Daughters by John Mayer. This year in video games, 60 Minutes beats up on video games. Xbox 360, PlayStation 3, and the Wii are all unveiled. Xbox is released this year. The others will be released next year. Madden NFL 06 is the top-grossing console game. And World of Warcraft is the top-grossing PC game. In other news, Terry Schiavo's feeding tube is removed. Former FBI Deputy Director Mark Felt admits that he was the whistleblower in the Watergate scandal. Four jihadi suicide bombers blow up areas in central London into the subway, killing 52. The housing bubble bursts. We ain't seen nothing yet, though, have we? Because we know it's coming in 2008. Anyway, the unemployment rate falls below 5% and will remain so for two years. But we know it's coming, though, right? Yeah, okay. Before I read the segment, um, this song, you know, I, Alex had a song from Nora, Nora Jones in yesterday's thing, so I checked her out. Never really listened to her. And I said she has almost like a kind of Billie Holiday, like old school sound to her in a way. So when I saw this one, I thought, man... I got it. Ray Charles is the man, you know. I got to see what this is about. So we talk about some pretty hard stuff here, and we d dig into a lot of the tyranny that is the state, and not everything's happy. This song just kind of makes you feel good. So I'm not going to play the whole thing for you, but I'm going to play a minute of it for you right now, first minute of it. There's a link in the show notes to the vi a video of it. You can go check out on YouTube and hear the whole thing if you want to. But if this doesn't make you feel a little bit better today, check your pulse. Something's wrong with you. So on the two main pieces for this year, I had to think about this one. Um, I just said I'm not going to do the global warming one, even though it makes some really salient points. Uh, I just don't want to dig into that one anymore for a while. I'm tired of it, uh, and I'm tired of the hate mail I get whenever I speak my mind on it. I'm just bored with it at this point. Uh, so I'm going to read something that I think we can learn something about trusting the state, even though it's not what it sounds like on the surface. Israel evicts the Jewish settlers from the Gaza Strip. It is called the disengagement plan. Jews must evacuate the Gaza Strip in order to lessen tensions and to enhance security. Years ago, the government encouraged settlement in the area. Many Jews settled into tight-knit communities. FYI, religious Jews tend to pray together. They don't drive on the Sabbath, so they tend to live within walking distance of each other. But these Jewish settlements have a problem for the have become a problem for the Israeli government. Israeli soldiers are forced to defend these areas from Arab attacks. Israeli soldiers tend to draw more attacks. Wash, rinse, repeat, repeat. When Israel retaliates for these attacks, the world criticizes. So Prime Minister Ariel Sharon decides, decides to evict the Jews from the Gaza. 
The settlers will be compensated. It's not as good a deal as it sounds. This also means that the dead must be disinterred. Established businesses must be abandoned. And religious Jews must give up their piece of the biblical Israel. 40,000 soldiers arrive to force everyone out. Many tears are shed by soldiers and settlers alike. Some people must be pried from their homes. Others are scooped up in the midst of prayer. It is painful to watch. Many Israeli citizens say, we can never do this again. But it, did it help with security? No, not really. My take by Alex Shrugged. It did not achieve its security goals, but was the compensation money adequate? It would have been if you were moving a few people, but when tens of thousands of people are suddenly dumped into a job and housing market like Israel, you have a lot of people homeless and out of a job. Then those same people start eating through their compensation money. Israel moved people into mobile homes temporarily, but after 10 years, most were still there, and the attacks on Jews continued unabated. So when someone tells me that the settlers in the so-called West Bank should be evicted, I laugh. They saw what happened to Gaza. They are not going to let go of their land until you pry it from their cold, dead fingers. You might say Israel can let them defend themselves. Yes, but the settlers will still be there defending their homes. And by defend, I mean with guns. They are willing to live alongside the Arabs, but anyone who messes with them is going to get shot, just so you know. Um, yeah, it, it, but see, to me, this goes back to trusting the state. The state is looking out for your interest. It also tells us something. You know how you, you hear people say, well, our troops will never? Um, imagine what it took to be an Israeli soldier and told, go take that old lady out of her house. But these men did their duty. I'm not saying they should have. I'm saying that's what they did. So you can trust the state if you want to. I'll continue to remain completely and totally skeptical of the state ever putting my best interest at heart. The state is a it is a life form. It, it really is. It's a life form. It acts like a life form. And it seeks to, to survive. And if that means it must put a boot on the neck of its subjects, it will do so. Including ripping old people out of their homes that they've lived in for you know decades. That's what really happened here. The state did this. This isn't the Arab. The Arabs attacked these people, but these people said, bring it on. We're not going anywhere. The state intervened. The state made the decision for them. And the state said, here's compensation for it. And the compensation was woefully inadequate in multiple ways. One, Alex's point is spot on. Israel's not a big country. And there's not a lot of options for housing. That's why these new settlements are such a big contentious thing. You go, why is Israel doing this? Don't we have so much freaking land, stupid? Okay? Especially usable land. Um, so when you drop people into that by the you know tens of thousands, it doesn't matter that they have money. They have nothing to buy. It's the same thing that's going on in the housing market here for a totally different reason right now. Try to buy a house for $150,000 in a growth market like Dallas, Texas, and see what it's like. There's houses selling every day for $150,000. The problem is there's 14 and 15 people trying to buy each one of them. And they're $150,000 houses that should be selling for about $120,000. And it's just because of a supply and demand thing. That's what was going on here. But here's why the compensation was woefully inadequate, no matter what. This was a form of imminent domain. That's what this was. It wasn't as obvious because they didn't put a Walmart there or something like that. But if I want to keep my property and you take it from me, Even if you pay me five times its market value, it's not fair compensation because the transaction did not have consent. And, and that's where all of the problems with the state come from. 
They never involve consent. Let me put it to you this way. What makes the exchange of goods for money not robbery? The answer is consent. Okay. What makes you working for me not slavery? Well, the answer is consent. You see how that works. So what makes the taking of property by the state against the will of the third party, if you remove consent, what makes that not theft? I don't know. I guess it's imagination. All right, folks, I want to remind you one more time about the Members Support Brigade. That's the way you can help support this show by becoming a member of our MSB. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. But I want to give you six of the more than 60 discounts we get today. All of these pertain to growing your own food. Marsh Creek Farmstead can give you discounts on the Irapan and Comfrey Cuttings. Bob Wells Nursery gives you 10% off all of their offerings, bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines that grow food in your own backyard. And then we have four great seed companies that all do really great discounts. Counts for you. NE Seeds, Terroir Seeds, the Victory Seed Company, and High Mowing Seeds. If you take advantage of those with your homesteading activities throughout the year, those alone will probably pay for your membership. And hey, you know what? There's still over 60 more companies offering discounts on things you're probably buying anyway. So get by the survivalpodcast.com today, click on members to learn more, and sign up. And if you've let your membership last lapse, remember now would be a great time to come on back to the Survival Podcast MSB. And with that, let's get into uh, a main topic today, looking at cryptocurrency in the, the, the vantage point of layman's terms, as best we can do so anyway. To do that, I'm bringing on Brian Young. He's a longtime listener of the Survival Podcast, been listening to us since 2012 and still listens daily. Feels like he's got a lot out of the Survival Podcast and thought this was one way that he could give back. I agree wholeheartedly, and I want to welcome him now. Brian, welcome to the Survival Podcast, man. Hey, Jack. Hey, Jack. Good to be with you. Man, I'm glad to have you on. Cryptocurrency has become a huge subject with people, and uh, I know when you reached out to me about talking to me about this, you're like, I'm not an expert, but I, you know, I, I, you know, I've kind of been researching this, and I think I can put it in layman's terms, and I'm like, that's exactly what we need, because you know, some of the folks we've had on about crypto, the conversation's really high level, and the person trying to learn feels overwhelmed. So I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, man. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, this community has uh, given me so much, and so it's just an opportunity to get back when you uh, made the invitation, so I'm happy to do it. Cool, man. Well, before we get into this uh, this deep dive here on uh, wallets and uh, blockchains and, and cryptocurrency, let's start out with who, who you are, man. Like, Can you give people just kind of a rundown? Like, What do you do professionally, and how did you end up there? Um, like, Take us back to Daydream and Study Hall in high school or something, and, and how do you get to where you are? Well, well, by, uh, by, by trade, trade, I'm an industrial, industrial automation engineer. Uh, I work every day in uh, manufacturing plants, helping them automate. Um, I did not have any clue that that's what I was going to end up doing in study hall, but it was something close to that. I was uh, seven or eight years old. I was inspired by, obviously, the space program and a lot of the Gen X words, so I got into uh Got into computer programming. I was taking computer programming when I was, um, you know, Saturday classes when I was seven or eight years old. Community college. Got into electronics classes when I was uh, in middle school and continued. I took both Dotech electronics in high school and was really felt like I needed to uh, go forward with that. And so I got a degree in electrical engineering and I took this. Took a job in automation engineering, which is nothing like 
what I thought I would be doing. I thought I'd be working for the space program, but NASA wasn't exactly hiring in the, in the 90s. And so, uh, amazingly, I've been there for 22 years. Wow. <laughs> so you, 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 you end up someplace sometimes you don't expect, but sometimes it works out. Um, and I guess then if you're, you're doing the automation thing, then in addition to the cryptocurrency thing, like a lot of that probably rings true for you, like with where we're headed with automation in the world. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, automation and cryptocurrencies is, is really going to change the world. I've seen a lot of changes in 20 years, and it's just accelerating. Yeah, absolutely. So let, let's kind of get into this uh, this subject matter of cryptocurrency. Um, what first of all, what was it that attracted you to cryptocurrency? When you know, bef- go back to you know a couple of days before you you know got involved at all, and what what made you say, hey, I, I want to pay attention to this, and I, I want to learn more about it, and I want to participate in it. I think when I first um, heard anything about it, it was from some blog like Slashdot or something like that. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And uh, so I just didn't really get into it um, until I heard you talk about it. And so I thought, well, maybe I need to look into this. You were really good at explaining it. So I got in, tried to get into mining, and that was just a, a wasted um Waste time and money. Um, I think I got like a ten, or not even a, a ten cents maybe, and it got uh, it got ate up when the uh, mining pool went under. So uh, I kind of gave up on it after that. And then I heard you talk about Coinbase, and so I looked into that what it was, what it took to get uh, to actually buy Bitcoin at that time. Uh, you know, prior to Coinbase, it was really kind of difficult to buy cryptocurrencies. You had to go meet somebody in person or, you know, share your bank account information with somebody in Japan or China that you've never met. It was kind of, kind of, uh, kind of daunting to do that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Coinbase is not a perfect solution, but I think it's given probably more people an entry into the world of owning Bitcoin and now Ether and Litecoin than anything else out there. You're exactly right. That's, That's where I bought my first one. I continue to buy, buy through there. So, yeah. Um, did I? Did you drop there? Or were you done? <laughs> no, I was done. Okay, just the way it kind of sounded like you dropped. Out. Anyway, um, so as as we're getting into that, like you know, can we start out with like the difference between what we would call an on-chain or an off-chain transaction? That would be something I think a lot of people wouldn't really understand the difference between those two things. Well, your on-chain transaction is the native type of transaction to the blockchain. That's what's handled by the miners or whoever is actually in charge of confirming transactions for the, that particular blockchain. And they're typically, unless the protocol allows for it, on Bitcoin, they are immutable. They can't be changed once they're confirmed. And... But because they're confirmed by the miners or some other someone trusted party in the blockchain, they're subject to whatever fees that uh, you have to pay to get the transaction confirmed. And they're also subject to any kind of transaction delay, which in Bitcoin right now is quite significant. So that's an on-chain transaction, something that you can go after it's complete. You can go uh, to that um Crypto's blockchain explorer, pull up those addresses and see that that transaction actually did happen and actually did confirm. 
the off-chain transaction is kind of like internal to some sort of centralized database. So Coinbase actually does some uh, off-chain transactions when you go from Coinbase to Coinbase account. That allows them to do it nearly instantly and with no fees whatsoever. But it's just in their database. They've just made the entry in their database, like me writing you a check. Gotcha. That's all they've ever done. Whereas the on-chain transaction is, you know, cash in your pocket. Gotcha. It's kind of like if you're on PayPal and you're not doing business, I just owe you some money. Uh, I think I actually changed this and took it away, but it used to be on PayPal. Like I could PayPal to PayPal, sending money to a friend. There was no fees. Right. Yeah. So, and that's the other reason too. Like I've heard all of this stuff about how long it takes for Bitcoin transactions to go through, and I would imagine the majority of people that purchase MSB with Bitcoin probably have a Coinbase account, and I've always seen it come like almost instantly. And occasionally be delayed. So I guess that's probably what's going on. The guy that's sending it to me from his own wallet somewhere or something like that outside of Coinbase, they're, they're having that transaction delay. But when um, they're going Coinbase to Coinbase, it's happening quickly. Or, for instance, like when I when I wanted to buy some Litecoin when they released that, as long as I used my Bitcoin ba- balance, it was instant. Like you just immediately had you know like converted it to Litecoin. Yeah, that's right. That's, right. that's why, why they, they do, do that, that is so that they can, can make them, them, you know, really quick. Uh, but there's, you know, there's some risk to that. You have to trust Coinbase, which I do, and a lot of people do, and they, they're doing a lot of things uh, to make you trust them. So, you know, they're earning the trust. Absolutely. Well, and they're, I mean, one of the criticisms I think they've gotten, and I don't think it's fair because, you know, if you want to run a business in this world, you have to deal with the Department of Making Sad, is they've complied with just about everything the government has asked them to do that's reasonable. Now, they also told the uh, the government to, to shove it up their, their fourth point of contact when they were presented with a, a gen, uh, what, like a blanket warrant or something. They wanted everybody's data. They're like, yeah, we're not doing that. So they, they've stood up for privacy that way, but they have... To be a money handler, they have done everything in every municipality that they operate in to be compliant so that they're, they are basically the, the cryptocurrency version of PayPal. And I think we, we need something like that if you're going to have it be a mainstream tool. Oh, absolutely. It's, 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 it's what got me there. I think it's a great gateway. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of uh, really good features that they have. Uh, their account security is, I wish my bank had some of the features that Coinbase has, particularly for login security. You know, I love that about the security. The the weakness to me, and I don't know if this is just something they have to figure out how to do or it's coming or whatever, is if I wanted to send you Ether from Coinbase, I can't. I can buy it. I can hold it. But if I want to pay you... Uh, what I would have to do is basically convert, if I had Ether is all I was holding, I would have to convert Ether to Bitcoin, pay you in Bitcoin. And I guess converting it inside your own account doesn't really cost anything, but it's just one of those things that would be nice if you could. And they don't have the vaults for Litecoin or, or Ether yet either. I, I love the vault feature with uh, with uh, Bitcoin. And the U.S. dollar wallets are something they really need to add to the to the Ether and Litecoin. That's a that's a great feature. Where uh, I don't the U.S. dollars once it's converted and that's held in U.S. dollars, it's it's actually in a custodial account, so it's yours. It's got your name on it, and no matter what happens, it's it's yours. Uh, it's actually FDIC insured, I think. Oh wow! I didn't. I I knew it was yours, but I didn't know it was insured. I thought it was more like PayPal. PayPal, I don't think, is insured at all. It's just, you know, your money's supposedly secured. And 
Maybe I'm wrong on that. I mean, I'd like to know. We'll check into that one. Um, Let's talk about, you know, Coinbase is a great place to get started, but how do you personally evaluate and learn about different wallet applications? Well, Well, I'm really really trying trying to decide, decide first off, obviously obviously which blockchain I'm going to be on, but... uh, you know, really, it's what's, what I'm going to use that for. Am I going to hold it and just store it? Am I, you know, am I going to use it for walking around money for, you know, payments or something that I'm going to buy online? Or am I going to do uh, trading or speculation where I may have to turn that around in minutes or seconds versus having to wait for transactions to confirm? So really those things are what I look at, and then I have to determine the level of security that are around that wallet that, you know, that I want to do. And so it's all a trade-off between speed and security. Gotcha. So let's kind of go through some of the different types of wallets. Let's talk about online wallets. What are they? What are their advantages and disadvantages? And why might you use an online wallet? The typical one, and we've already talked about, is Coinbase. Uh, but an online wallet is anywhere that you have to have an account and login security to access the private keys. And the private keys are what uh, is critical on the blockchain. That's what proves that you own what's in that wallet. So if that gets compromised, whoever gets it can move that stuff without your permission. So... That's why private keys private keys are important. The online wallets store your keys online in a cloud in a server somewhere in the internet. So that's basically what an online wallet is and how 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 it does that. What that's what the concern is is you know how secure is it to be able to log into that account? As we talked about, Coinbase is just fantastic. Um, certain things you may want to ask yourself or ask the the exchange or whoever's hosting that wallet is you know in case of in case they go under who's who owns that I mean is it is it a promise that you have Bitcoin or do you actually have the Bitcoin? Hmm. The <laughs> that's important to know. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, is, it, is it custodial, right? If they go and solve it for some reason, you know, you want to know that your stuff is your stuff, and how do you get it? Um, how how do they protect their private keys? You know, do they have them locked away, air gap somewhere, and only bring them out when they need them? You know, one of the big problems that I've had with Coinbase in trying to do any kind of uh, uh, speed sensitive transaction. Is there uptime? I don't know if you remember the uh, the fury over the Bitcoin ETF that happened a couple of months ago. But the SEC published a date by which they would have this ruling on whether they could create this Bitcoin ETF. It was the longest telegraph punch of a volume spike that they were going to have in Bitcoin history. And when it finally came out, Coinbase was down for five hours. I could not get into trade. Really? I could not get in anything. So that's really where, you know, uh, I think they've got to step it up on their engineering side to make sure that that type of stuff doesn't happen. Is, is, is locked up, is 
that made Bitcoin everywhere. I almost wonder if they manually shut it down for a few hours while they figured out what to do. Because if they had been taking orders, it would have been a nightmare to try to fulfill them at that point. <laughs> they might have figured they were better off with us pissed off because we couldn't log in than, um, you know, than having us log in and not be able to order. I don't know. Um, I didn't buy during that, which probably was a mistake because it's had a good run since. Um, on that note, kind of a segue there, I think I've heard quite a few people express the opinion that it's highly likely that uh, eventually that will be approved, that there's a lot of opinion that eventually that's going to come around and they'll be, you'll be able to do an ETF with it. Um, I personally don't get it. I mean, I look at it this way, like holding a Bitcoin ETF is like the most retarded way to hold Bitcoin I've ever heard of in my life. Because why wouldn't you just hold Bitcoin? Why would you go into this big public menagerie of all these eyes on your money when you can hold your money independently? But as a person with a significant portion of my portfolio in Bitcoin, I can see the advantages to me of other people doing that because it gives it a legitimacy, it puts it into a financial product, and all of a sudden it starts popping up in things like IRAs and stuff like that. And I guess that would be the one thing you could say for it is that if you're a person that's going to pay every dime of your taxes that you owe, like you're supposed to as a, as a good citizen, that if you open it up in ETFs, all of a sudden now you can hold um, Bitcoin. And uh, once they did Bitcoin, I think they'd have to let everybody else in in uh, deferred, uh, deferred tax accounts. I guess that would be the only real appeal I can see there. From a from a personal perspective, yes, uh, that's that's exactly right. Um, I think what the push is is for it to allow institutional investors who are required to only invest in registered securities, mm. and so that it's kind of a double edged sword. You know, you get those guys in and they give you some legitimacy, and then they start shorting, and then they start doing you know all kinds of funny stuff, and they withdraw their money at the wrong time. And it sends this – I think it, the reason that um, – I think it was a good reason that it was denied is that it just it, – it takes that quotient of volatility out of the market for now and allows it to mature a little bit more before they actually get it done. Yeah, because there's some – we'll come towards the end. There's some issues with Bitcoin that kind of need to be solved for that type of volume to even work. Um, and it is, it is concerning. I think the other thing is like, so what was the purpose of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in the first place? to tell the bankers, F off, go away, we don't need you anymore, and basically you're letting them into the game at that point. Now, I don't know how how much damage they could really do. I mean, when you look at Bitcoin, you could move it around quite a bit, but in the end, there's, there's only ever going to be 23 million of them. And once you get that kind of legitimacy, all of a sudden everybody and their mother wants a few Bitcoins. Well, math says you can't do that, Right. I mean, I'm not sure where we're at in the mining right now. I know that there's less every year. I don't know, though, have we mined half the Bitcoins? You know, is, is there 12, 13 million Bitcoins available? If there is, and 10% of America wants one Bitcoin, you're out of Bitcoin. So I think that once that happens, it, it would be hard for them to to, to really short it and, and, and manipulate it downward because... You know, I don't know. I mean, again, there's maybe a smaller group of coins to play with, so you could, with some heavy money, move it around a bit. But I think the long-term trend would still be, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard me say this. I kind of look at Bitcoin becoming the gold of crypto. It um, 
all these new cryptos will do things Bitcoin probably never will be able to do as far as speed and you know transparency or complete obscurity of transaction. But it was first. It's been attacked every single way that you can possibly attack it. It won't go away. People know it's going to last. Uh, it doesn't spend fast, so that's fine because it's deflationary and nobody wants to spend it. Everybody wants to hold it anyway. So I think as crypto becomes more of something that goes into people's investment portfolio, that's your gold. That's like, you know, you only sell that when you have to or when you're converting it into another asset. I think there probably will be that two-tier system where it's going to be something that you don't move, particularly, I mean, uh, if, particularly if they don't uh, fix this scaling problem, which, they, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But it's, that, that's got to get done. Yeah. Um, I guess we'll, we can leave that for later, though. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see, because I think that makes a good finish. Let's kind of move on and talk about, because we talked about online wallets. Let's talk about software wallets. What's a software wallet? What advantage and disadvantage of having a software wallet? And why might one choose to use a software wallet versus a, you know, an online wallet? Well, a software wallet is something that uh, is a piece of software that you put on a device. So it's on your laptop, your phone, your tablet. Um, your physical security of that device is now really important, right? Because as soon as you lose that, you lose a lose the ability to spend your bitcoins, but then you also introduce the possibility that someone can open you up and then spend them for you, which you don't want to do. Um, the, the real that's the real disadvantage. The other disadvantage is, you know, if you have happen to get some malware that's aware of certain wallets on your computers, um, you might have an issue there. But this is where you put your spending around, or your spending money, your pocket change. Uh, you go to the farmer's market, and somebody is really progressive there and takes, I don't know, Litecoin or Ethereum for tomatoes or something like that. That's where you put that. It's it's convenient. And you, you don't have to worry about, um, you know, login issues uh, or, and not being able to access it uh, like we talked about with Coinbase during that period of time. That's where I keep the majority of my – that's where I keep about half of my stuff, actually, okay. is in a software wallet. I guess that, you know, like you said, that the, when you look at a software wallet versus, like, let's say an online wallet, who has better security? And, and in you know the case of Coinbase, I'd say they do. When I look at exchanges like Bitrix, which is when I want to buy something that I can't get in Coinbase, I'll, I'll go on Bitrix and buy it. But what I'll do is I'll send you know I'll send some Bitcoin from my Coinbase account over to Bitrix. I'll execute the trade and buy it, and then I'll push it into a wallet somewhere. I will not leave it sit in the wallets on Bitrix on the exchanges because. You know, Mt. Gox, right? That was that was a, a, an eye opener, and you know, I, I just don't trust my money on an exchange for any longer than necessary to conduct the transactions. The odds that while well, I'm picking up $500 worth of Swarm City tokens, uh, the thing will crash and burn and and do a Mt. Gox are pretty low. And if they do, okay, I'm out that one trade, right? Um, whereas if you just keep your money in an exchange, I think that might be one of the Least secure environments, though, I I, I kind of feel like they're they're getting better. Uh, you, we haven't heard of something like a Mt. Gox well since Mt. Gox. Yeah, they are getting better. And what enabled Mt. Gox to do what they did and, and enabled that to be a problem? Off-chain transactions. Hmm. So that's why I think it's important to be aware that's 
that that that's that's out there. Um, absolutely. If you're if you, I, I think the absolute best course of action is to get it the heck off an exchange as soon as your trade is done, unless you think you're going to like turn it around in the next five minutes and flip it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and I don't I don't do that with with crypto anyway yet. Uh, I think there's people doing it, making good money for it. But I, I actually see most of the crypto that I buy as like long-term risk plays, right? So I'm really impressed with what I'm seeing coming out of Swarm City. Uh, it's either going to be a great success or a complete flop, right? It's going to be one or the other. And if it's even a mediocre success, the value of their currency will immediately go up because right now it's floating between you know a buck and two dollars, depending on what day it is, with Basically, all they have to show for what they've done so far is a wallet and a story. So if they if they complete that, so in that instance, when I wanted to buy some Swarm City tokens, I went to Swarmbot City. I created an account, which is basically a device wallet, I guess is what you would call it, uh, that it creates on the specific device. So if you are on another device, you'd have to actually move your tokens, I guess. I don't know really much about it yet, but I wanted to get some tokens, so I went to Swarm City to get some tokens. Nope. <laughs> just sit there looking at an empty wallet. And uh, so that's when I discovered Bittrex because I could go there and get an address, go over to Coinbase, pop some money over, uh, buy the tokens, and then as soon as they were delivered, just deposit them into my Swarm City wallet. So that's kind of how I see using exchanges to the best of ability. Now, to be fair, um, when I did that, as soon as I logged into my Bittrex account, I got an email saying, did you do this? Because if you didn't, click here and we'll shut your account down right now for you. Uh, and then when I said send my Swarm City tokens out, I got an email that said, are you sure you want to do this? Because we're not going to do this until you click this link. So I think from the standpoint of like somebody hacking your account and getting your money out of it, they'd also have to have your email account. You know, So there's multiple security levels there, and like two-point verification. However... I don't know enough about the backside of things, like you know, if somebody can hack the keys and whatever, they can just yank the money out. But the system itself won't—it won't work without two-party, two-step two verification. So I don't want to be like unfair to Bitrix or any of the other exchanges. I just point out that I don't keep my money there. Right. The account security is uh, is an issue, and you definitely need to make sure you've got at least some sort of two-factor authentication. Of um, preferably like an Authy or Google Authenticator on a smart device, but at, you know, at a minimum, you know, an SMS message where you can uh, confirm those things. But um, that's one thing, and that's one thing to look for when you're working with an exchange. But you, you do, like you said, you minimize your, your risk by just doing the transaction and then moving over to a software wallet because, you know, who has time to sit down and, Look at how Bitrix or GDAX or Gemini or Bitfinex or any of these guys actually protect their private keys. I don't. I don't either, and I wouldn't understand it if I did. And I guess the thing about software wallets that mitigate to a degree the concern with security is it's generally not the way hackers work. They either fish you, which is not really hacking. It's just are you stupid enough to click this link and do what I tell you to do? Or they go after bigger targets. Like, do do I really have time as a hacker to try to break into, you know, Brian's iPhone to get, you know, $5 worth of Ethereum out of his wallet? And, and the answer is I probably don't. If I'm that good, I can do, I could probably actually be doing legitimate things and making more money than I can do from hacking that way. 
So I, I guess there's some mitigation to that. I wouldn't keep a tremendous amount of money in a software wallet either. That kind of brings me to one of my next questions. Let's talk about hardware wallets. What's a hardware wallet? Advantage and disadvantage of that and why you might choose that. Just a, a quick point about the, uh, the, the software wallets. If you've got it on your phone, it's always with you. Yep. I mean, if, if I've lost my phone, I know it's gone immediately. So that, that's kind of a, a you know, physical security uh, standpoint from uh, that I think is also a point that we need to consider. The, and before you go on, I would also point out it's a little harder for your average you know, uh, basement hacker to hack into somebody's phone than it is to their computer. It, it's not quite the same. It's not that it can't be done, and the friggin' NSA damn sure can do it. But uh, the guys that are out there, you know, the the, the Romanians trying to, to get you to send money to Nigeria or whatever, they generally aren't that good at getting into your phone. And just look at how long uh, uh, this big, long public uh, drama that we had, what, a couple of years ago, uh, that the FBI was going to make Apple unlock the phone. Yeah. Um, and Apple said, we can't do it. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, let's go into hardware wallets. So a hardware wallet is just a device like um, it can be USB or some of them are um, Bluetooth or near-field communications. But it's just kind of this secured special purpose device. And its sole purpose in life is to uh, protect your private keys and sign transactions. And that's it. It's a special operating system. Uh, that's been designed with security in mind to to deal with that. So, like, I have a Ledger Nano S, which is what I carry on my keychain. To get that, um, I plug it in, plug it into my computer. It powers up. I enter a PIN, and then I tell it what blockchain I would like to work from. And it has a Chrome app, which I think they're going to be changing to something else, but has a Chrome app that I open up for that wallet. I can see the balance, and then I can do my transactions there. So just like a normal transaction, I would go in and put in an address and an amount, click send. That then actually gets sent to the device where it will sign the transaction, pass it back to the app. The app sends it out to the blockchain. So the... Private keys never hit a common operating system device like an iPhone or your laptop or something that people, there's security holes in every day. You know, I, I just patched, I don't know how many computers yesterday uh, for, you know, Microsoft Windows. So that's really the, the key. It's another gap in, uh, in, that, in securing your private keys. Very cool. Okay. Um, so then the other wallet that we haven't covered yet would be um, a paper wallet. So can you explain that? Because I think that's the one that probably makes people the most confused. I think we get like an online service. We all have online bank accounts now, and that's pretty much how that works. Hardware, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a device, so I can actually disconnect it from the net, so it's protected. Software, it's probably on a connected device. So that all makes sense. But how the hell can a virtual currency exist on a piece of paper? So what a paper wallet is, is it is a private key and a public address that's just printed out on a piece of paper. Now, how do you do that? Um, there, Bitcoin has one called Bitcoin Paper Wallet. I think there's a, 
a couple of others uh, for for them, and then obviously for the different uh, other cryptocurrencies as someone develops one. But basically, the process in doing that is you you load up that web page, and then you right click and you save that web page off to a USB dump. And that saves off the page, the graphics, and the JavaScript that's behind it that actually will do the generation of the wallet for you. Then you take that over to an air-gapped computer, a computer you have no intention of putting ever on the Internet, boot it up, uh, maybe from a Linux Live CD, something like that. Plug that in, open that up in Firefox, or whatever browser, and then generate your wallet. And it will generate this nice, pretty little thing with a couple QR codes on it. And you print those out. That is actually now a valid uh, wallet address on that blockchain, even though you've never been on the blockchain to confirm it. So now you have the public address with the QR code there. You can send Bitcoin to it. You can go on the Blockchain Explorer if you want to and confirm that transaction happened and see the balance in it, but you cannot spend it until you import the private key into something like a software wallet. Where this is fantastic is if you're going to hold something for, you know, forever and and almost never going to touch it, stick it in a safe and forget about it and only pull it out when you need it. The you know the disadvantages of it is it's a piece of paper right it can burn up yep. you can lose it. it the ink can smudge on it there's all different types of things that can happen so you have to be really really careful keep multiple copies uh, that kind of thing with paper wallet. I guess the other advantage though would be that if you memorize that key, uh, you could get on a plane in New York City and get off a plane in Paris, France have nothing for customs to look at and have access to all of your money. Yes, if you can memorize, and I, I, I don't think that they give you the mnemonic. I yeah. think it's just this random, you know, string of characters. That'd that be all the memorization, right. but I guess there's there's more than one way to have that string of information available to yourself. Um, yeah. I mean, I could think of like, you could do things that are like that almost seem stupid, but they'd be almost impossible that anybody would ever know what to do with it. Um, if you had a place somewhere with a text file on it that used a, um, a, a specific off encryption, which is a very simple encryption that you know NSA would break, but you'd have to know what it was and what to do with it. So what I mean by that is if the number on it was a nine and you were using two off encryption, um, then you, your number would be uh, one. Because you'd go from nine to zero to one, so you're two off. If it was B, you would go B, would go C, D, and by just knowing that off, so you could have a text file sitting on a server somewhere that is completely unconnected to that, and you could anywhere you can access the internet, you could go grab that text file, change the the, the encryption based on your whatever you set it to, and then use it. I mean, so to me, like that type of technology is the person that wants to get away from something could always get their money back one way or another, and it would be impossible to extort it from them. You can't, you can't prove I have it. I have nothing in my hands. I have nothing in my pockets. You check my luggage all you want, but I could be, I could be going to Sydney, Australia with a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin that way. Yeah, that's, that's really uh, uh, something that's, you know, if, you're, if you really want to do that, that's definitely a way to do it. Um, they can't... Uh, 
they can't make you give it up. I mean, they can put a gun to your head and say, give it up or else, but they can't prove that you got it. You're absolutely right. That's, they'd have to know you had it, right? They'd have to know you right. had it to make you give it up. And, you know, I mean, if I was – this is not something I'm going to do, but I believe in putting information out there for people to, to understand. And, I mean, if I was going to do that, then I would have two of them, one with a little bit in it and one with a lot. And if I was ever actually extorted to the point of being willing to give it up, I'd go, here you go. That's a great idea. And there's your 500 bucks. That's all you did all this over 500 bucks, man. Sorry about it, you know. It's like <laughs> That's just like, you know, you always keep some shitty old guns around the house. So if they ever do a gun grab and they come to your house instead of saying, "You're not getting my guns." You go, "Yeah, here. To get to, here's the high point and the the old rusted Sears shotgun by and yeah, that's, and, that's the gun and something with a Yeah. Something yeah. with a busted uh busted uh firing pin. Yeah. Here yeah. You go. There you go. <laughs> um so yeah, I I I think it be I think they're probably the least used, but it's good to know they're there because that is the the kind of the the get out of jail I guess wallet I guess you'd say so to speak. Um, let's talk about backing them up because like all of these things have potential things that go wrong. Like you said, a piece of paper can burn. Uh, how do you back up the different kinds of wallets so that you don't lose your stuff? Well, the online wallet, pretty much you can't. Um, unless they give you access to your private keys, uh, Coinbase does not. Um, I'm not aware of this, any of the others. I don't use them, so some of them may actually give you the ability to back that up. But if they do uh, and they give it to you in mnemonic form, you actually want to write that on a piece of paper. Um, that's not something that I trust uh, having in a text file. I, I read um, – I read a story about this guy who lost his Ethereum because he had his backup phrase uh, in a notepad file uh, stored on his uh, Dropbox account. And so somebody actually hacked into his Dropbox account, knew what it was, got it, and sorry, buddy. Um, so absolutely write that down on a piece of paper and put it in your safe. Um, but online wallets, you generally can't do that. Software. And hardware wallets, you most certainly can. Uh, if the wallet that you're using doesn't allow you to do that, then you need to find another wallet. Um, it will basically give you a recovery seed that is anywhere between 12 and 24 words long. Write that down and thinking of that, that's something that you can write in code because you can write those in all different orders, right? Yep. Sure you could. And... Stick that once you're once you're done with that. What I did for my own personal consciousness and and knowing that I could actually do it is I sent five bucks to the wallet, whatever crypto it was. I sent five five ten bucks to it. I had my recovery key. I blew away the wallet and I re-entered that in uh, according to the instructions and boom. There was my account again, and there were no worries. And at that point, then I said, oh, okay, I can put more than $5 in here because I know the recovery seed works. I have the confidence that I can do it and rock on with life. I think that's a, probably a good thing for people to do to give themselves confidence in things like this because, you know, you are talking about your money. Um, but that brings me to one of my views of all of this. There is a lot of... Um, FUD, I think, built around the whole concept. Well, nothing's guaranteed. Uh, it's not insured. You know, doesn't have government safeguards. 
And I think that it actually will make people more vigilant about protecting their assets because there's no false sense of security. Because if you think your money in the bank is guaranteed, I mean, sure, if your bank goes bust, your money's guaranteed. The government can cover a bank going bust. That's, that's the case. If we have a complete financial meltdown, FDIC would be broke too, right? Like they, and there's always a potential for someone to hack some things, for somebody to commit identity theft. And I think that people are very lackadaisical about their security because they expect someone else to handle it for them. Where with crypto, it's pretty obvious. Or like if you compare like stock IPOs, you can go dead broke buying stock IPOs, but people will point out where they're doing these, you know, initial token offers, ITOs, I guess they call them or whatever. And, and, you know, there's no assurances or whatever. Yeah, but that would mean that you should know why you're investing your money, right? I mean, I think that there is, that's like a good thing, I think, out of cryptocurrency. It doesn't mean nobody will get hurt by it, but I do think it'll create more astute uh, protection of our own assets. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, that it's like cash in your pocket, right? You you got to protect it. And how much do you want to carry around with you? And and uh, how much do you want to leave at home in the safe or whatever? I'll I'll share a quick story. I had a buddy of mine who was uh, traveling in Germany in what was it, 1973 or 72, when Nixon. Uh, Took the dollar off the gold standard, or, or I, I'm trying to remember exactly what happened there. I'm sorry, but um, uh, they were going around in Germany uh, trying to get somebody to take a hundred dollar bill. They didn't know that it was still going to be worth anything. They didn't know. Gotcha. And so they wouldn't take. It. Yeah, I would have took it. <laughs> yeah, I would too. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do remember that. I think there's a confusion there with the gold thing. Like, So what actually happened was Nixon made that move in 72, but what actually completely decoupled the, the, the an ounce of gold from the dollar, and when you saw gold and silver both make huge runs, was in 75, we legalized private gold ownership. So even though they decoupled the gold, you know, gold from the dollar in 72, the market was unable to show the disparity. Because what had been happening is the gold had been artificially held down if you denominated it in dollars for 50 years. Because since you know money and gold were linked at I think $33 uh, an ounce, there was no way for gold to show that it was worth more. As soon as they let private investment into gold, and individuals were able to pay whatever they had, you know, had to pay whatever the seller demanded for gold. Boom, the whole thing. Like So a lot of times I'll use the year 1975, and people will wonder why, and that's because that's when it actually mattered. You know, It was not from the way you're pointing out, but from it mattered from the price of gold. And I think that maybe we're starting to see some some inkling of like gold and Bitcoin because they seem to be uh, – actually, I think gold is uh, now undervalued for an ounce of gold. Is worth, you can't buy an ounce of gold with a Bitcoin anymore. Uh, or you can. I'm sorry. You can get more than an ounce for a Bitcoin. It's kind of crazy. Um but Bitcoin is not without problems, and there is a plan to fix Bitcoin with a hard fork, but not enough buy-in from miners, I guess, to do that. Can you kind of talk about that? What is this hard fork, and how does it affect Bitcoin? Well, the, the real 
issues, there's a, there's a big political issue within Bitcoin because everybody admits that there is a scaling problem. Um, you know, taking the amount of time it takes to, to confirm a transaction and the amount of miners fees you have to add to make it happen, are, everybody says it's unacceptable. So what there are are competing ideas about how that should be done. Um, one is uh, a, a soft fork, which is just a, a, a slight tweak, but I think they have to have something like 95% um, of the miners uh, agree that that's a good thing, and then it activates. The hard fork is what's more troubling because what you end up with is two separate chains that share a common parent. And the, just because there's been a hard fork doesn't mean the miners are going to just switch over to the new stuff, right? They can continue to say, well, we can, we would prefer to continue mining this old stuff. So, I mean, look at Ethereum and their hard fork that was back in October, I think. Uh, there's still people mining Ethereum Classic, and it still has value. So the takeaway from that is that there's nothing we can do about that. We're not miners out there uh, trying to uh, trying to throw our weight around and get them to pick one way or the other. But if you've got a hard fork coming, uh, then it's imminent. Coinbase has got some recommendations, and I think it's a, a really good one because the – Online wallet services, just because the, it forks doesn't mean they're going to support, support both forks. Coinbase has actually said they won't support both forks. They're going to stop all transactions and kind of see which way the wind blows and jump on the most popular chain, which strands you if you want to have access to the other and your Bitcoin is on, um, on Coinbase. And basically what happens if there's two chains and you hold Bitcoin when it forks, you have coins on both chains now and your private keys work on both. Okay. But if you spend on one, it goes away on the other. No, it's still there. Okay. Huh. It's like a stock split. Yep. I'm well. Because that's not like when, when that happened with Arcade City and it, they did a brand fork to Swarm City. That's not how that worked. They, you traded one for the other. As far as I know, that there, that's not a. You can trade that. Yeah. And Coinbase may do that for you. I didn't see anything uh, in their documentation on uh, their advisory on doing a, a hard fork that they would do that. So that leads me to believe that they just abandoned that chain. Yeah. Yeah, but you would still, but I guess if it's in your Coinbase account, you wouldn't. But what you're saying is, if I was holding Bitcoin in a uh, paper wallet or a software wallet or whatever, when they made that fork, I would still have, I would basically have double the Bitcoin. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly the right. That's exactly what I'm saying. If they fork Bitcoin, you will have what is 41 million instead of 21 million or 42 million. Huh. So that's where this is all getting kind of fuzzy because uh, the guy that's pushing the hard fork is saying that he would uh, take all his bitcoins on the other chain and sell them and depress the price. And so it's just this big mess. It's something that um, you know we 
None of us have any influence in whatsoever. We just have to be prepared for no, it. No, the miners are the ones with all the influence. Basically, every time they mine a Bitcoin, they get a vote. That's the way I understand it. And my understanding is they need a 95% vote to make this switch. I guess that would be assurance that that's what the miners are going to do, and that's why they have such a high threshold. Because if you had 5% of the miners out there dicking around with this much slower version it would it would wither and die away, or it would it would go the way of Ethereum Classic. You mentioned that, sure, Ethereum Classic is there, but you know it's it's toddled around at five dollars since the fork. Um, you see which one of those won won out on that? Like there was a, a legitimate good reason for that hard fork. There was a, a an exploitable vulnerability in Ethereum. They fixed that vulnerability. They went on with life, and the market has adopted, you know, the new Ethereum, if you want to call it that. However, Ethereum wasn't Bitcoin. Like it, like if you even owned Ethereum, you had a higher level of understanding of what you were doing than like. There's so many people that own some Bitcoin now that have no idea. They have no idea anything other than I own Bitcoin, and and this would cause a lot more, I guess, angst. And it also kind of breaks the rules. Like the whole point of Bitcoin was it was immutable. It was what it says it was, and it would always be that. Well, the problem is you got a problem you got to fix, and you can't be immutable and fix the problem. I guess. Well, you can be immutable, right? But you just end up with double the amount of, of bitcoins. Now, like you said, the in the Ethereum fork, they actually the market decided, and and definitely has now since uh, Ethereum has has run up so much. From that time, the market decided that this is the way to go. So, but you're absolutely right. It's going to ch cause a lot of angst, um, and I think the threshold is 95% for the soft fork, which is uh, segregated witness. The, as I understand it, the hard fork is 51%. So, you know, that's a little more. Concerning. I, I haven't looked at it lately, but I, I, it seems to me that it's backed off a little bit and that uh, that it's not imminent. But it, the, the problem still exists, and it needs to be fixed, right? Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, it, it seems like there's there's multiple solutions being proposed, and they all seem to be better than what we have now, um, from what I can tell. As far as you know, if you did it, it would work better. Right, and then I guess the question is, well, do you want to fix the problem, or do you want to live with the problem and turn Bitcoin into gold, to the reserve currency of cryptocurrencies? Because I guess that's see, that's kind of where I'm, I'm I'm coming up with that prediction. Like, if you don't fix this problem, it it's it, not only will the problem not go away, it's not going to make Bitcoin wither up and die. There, there's 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 a lot of Bitcoin millionaires out there, um, and That value is there, and as long as it's fungible into other cryptos, you could just say, hey, these are the rules, this is the way we made it, and this is the way that it's going to be. And what that actually might do is suppress the, the type of concerns you expressed earlier about institutional investors. You can't be um, you know, running all these uh, speculative uh, instantaneous trades with Bitcoin because it won't do it. So it would actually kind of mitigate that, I guess, would be one way. I guess they could create their derivatives of Bitcoin or whatever, and they probably will, but that's what other cryptos kind of are. 
it's like they're still they're still playing with you know 1920s mindset of banking in in 2017 and they can't even catch up to bitcoin and most of us are like bitcoin's gold you know it's old it's old crypto at this point you know we're looking at things like dash and ethereum and and wondering you know what what's the next innovation going to be Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things, uh, and it was great advice, I think, um, uh, I heard it on uh, your show with Brandon, is to just kind of look for, like, those Me Too coins. Like, for example, Litecoin. I thought for the longest time that Litecoin was just this Me Too coin um, that somebody put out. They, they tweaked a few parameters, and then that's it, and they put it out there. Well... With Bitcoin in the state that it's in, and the solution, the 95% solution to fix Bitcoin was just activated on Litecoin at 75%. So not that they had a, uh, a transaction problem, uh, a transaction rate problem, but they went ahead and did it anyway in anticipation that they may have that problem. So now it's not a Me Too coin. Now yeah. it's... Now it, there's something different, and this may be your point of sale, you know, transactions, and then Bitcoin is your savings account or gold. Yeah, I mean, and that's what Litecoin was at the beginning, even though it didn't fulfill its promise until they figured this out and fixed it. Like when I remember when Litecoin came out, and that's another one. I was like, gee, I wish I would have bought a bit of that. Um, but they pretty much marketed themselves as silver. Right, I don't know if you remember that, but when Litecoin first came out, it was kind of like we're the silver to Bitcoin's gold. They meant it differently than we're talking about it now. But I think part of what they meant was, if you think about silver and gold, there's there you know once they demonetized both and both floated as independent commodities, there's been a pricing disparagement ever since because it was the 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 link was never real. There's just not as much demand for silver as gold. Period. And only by having both falsely in a, a bimetallic monetary system were they ever coupled into, you know, 20 ounces of silver is an ounce of gold type of thing. And now silver's 16 bucks and gold's, you know, I don't even know what it is today, but it's over a grand, right? Well, why do people buy silver to stack silver? Do they buy it because they expect one day it'll be half the value of gold, or they buy it because they get more for less money? That's actually the, the, the mentality. If you think about somebody buying silver and they're going to buy you know, $2,000 worth of silver, um, in their head they're getting more because they have more units, right? That's, that's Because if, if gold goes up 20% or silver goes up 20% and you've bought $2,000 worth of either, your profit is the same. You see what I mean? There's no real difference, but I can afford to go out and buy a couple ounces of silver every month. Or I can't afford to go buy gold every month because to get it down into the fractional component... I have to, to pay such a premium for it. So if you, when you think about Bitcoin, that seems preposterous when Bitcoin started because Saatchi, right? So I can buy a 10 millionth of a Bitcoin, so there's no impediment. But now that transaction fees are higher because of this problem, I can afford Litecoin even if I can't afford Bitcoin, if that makes sense. I can buy 50 bucks worth of Litecoin every month, and it doesn't have a huge weight of transaction fee. And I can feel good because I got two of them instead of uh, you know whatever the hell portion it's uh, you know fifty bucks is of, of a Bitcoin today. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean uh, the 
The problem initially with gold there really isn't there with Bitcoin, right? Because you can buy, yeah, you can buy a quarter ounce of gold, but you're going to pay more more per spot, right? A lot more. Right. So you don't have that problem with Bitcoin except these transaction fees. So yeah, I follow what you're saying there. Yeah, and I mean that's that was kind of like Coin's appeal, like when they came out as a Me Too coin, like you said, but they were like one of the first Me Too coins. They, they they've been around, you know, almost as long as Bitcoin. And that was their appeal that, hey, we're cheap. You can buy lots of us. And, uh, again, it's one of those things that, you know, and, and I think now what they're saying is, and we work a lot better. In fact, we're the solution to Bitcoin's problem if they'd be smart. And I'm not saying they're right when they say this, but they're basically, our protocol, our idea, our, you know, our lightning is the solution to their problem. And uh, so, correct me if I'm wrong, in some way, one of these ways we're talking about, It actually is the adaptation of Litecoin's blockchain that Bitcoin is that how that would work or something like some kind of hybridization. So the the, the talk is segregated witness. Okay, that's uh, it. and and um, I think on top of that they can put something on there called the Lightning Network, um, and that's really like a second tier payment processing type deal. Um, I. I I really haven't gotten that deep in the weeds on segregated witness um, because, you know, there's really, you know, if they activate it, great transaction times go up, but there's nothing I need to do. So that's why I kind of focused on the hard fork. And I don't, I don't dive into those kind of technical details for um, for that. But I guess the, the deal is that they're either going to fix it or they're not. And if they don't fix it, the problem will get worse. The miners are going to have to fix it, um, you know. As, particularly as you see the run-up of all these uh, other altcoins and tokens, and as that that's business that they could have had, right? And I think that's one reason why that that market uh, is increasing, in addition to the fact that they're offering more functionality. So. I really think that uh, that they're going to get wise and figure out we got to fix this, or we're just going to have to accept that we're not going to have those transactions and those fees. Because I mean that's the, that's the issue. If if Bitcoin becomes gold, the business of mining Bitcoin becomes very um, sparse. It's not that it's not profitable. It's just there's not a lot of it to be done because the less transactions in Bitcoin that happen, the less mining, because that's what, I think one of the things that people struggle with is when we hear Bitcoin mining, we're thinking about people digging a Bitcoin out of the blockchain, a new Bitcoin, minting one, so to say. But miners in Bitcoin don't just mine Bitcoin. They also verify transactions. And right now, I think they're probably doing better verifying transactions financially than they are mining Bitcoins because they become more and more scarce. Exactly, and they may be. I mean, who knows? That may be why that they're they're dragging their feet. They make more money uh, mining the, or verifying the transaction than they are if they uh, if they actually mine a Bitcoin. I don't know what that is, but eventually something's going to break. The market's going to go to other altcoins and 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 regard Bitcoin as this glorious founder and a, a gold standard that you know people put away and don't use. And then <laughs> and then at that point they've got to do something if they want to remain viable because yeah, and they may just be holding their breath that make as much money as they can while they can make it. 
Um, because if you think about the way it works for them right now, they have more work than they can handle, and it pays a premium. I mean, that's if you if you really think about it, that's where they're at right now. Like, I will never run out of transactions to process as much horsepower as I have to process them with. There will be transactions for me, um, and I will get paid a premium for each one that I do. And I think only at the point where they realize I can do more transactions easier for less money per transaction and make more money will they will they yield? Because why would they otherwise? Because you know we think about cryptocurrency with a lot of goodwill. That the people that came up with it, the people that design it, the people that, that are very mission-oriented, and that that's their primary thing is freeing humanity, techno-anarchism, call it what you want to. But miners are not designers. Miners are in the business to do what? To make money. money. Right. That's why they're there. Um, so they're not mission-oriented. I'm not saying all of them are like that, but most of them. You know, I know some guys that have done well that have been mining Bitcoin for a long time, And I'm not saying they're bad guys. I'm just saying the reason they did it was to make money. In fact, most of the guys I know that were mining Bitcoin, you know, long ago enough to actually have made some money doing it, are actually using their computer horsepower to mine other crypto at this point because it's not that profitable to them anymore. Yeah, I actually did uh, get into uh, cloud mining a little bit. And uh, what I have actually found, uh, the algorithm that I use is they're mining altcoin, and then when uh, they take my wins and automatically convert them to Bitcoin and send them to me. Yeah. So they, they're paying me in Bitcoin, but they're mining these other altcoins, which are Monero or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I've tried some cloud mining, and I was mining the alt currencies because they were a little more likely to actually end up with something. Um, but. It seemed to me like for the time my computer was running to, to get, you know, um, a, a quarter of a dash or something like that, um, I, I could have probably just bought it. I, I, I have not yet seen cloud mining seem to pay off. I mean, it does cost money for my computer processor to be humming at full tilt. I actually, um, I back when I did my Bitcoin mining, I bought, I don't know, for 40 or 50 bucks this this little uh, USB thing with this big, huge heat sink on it to try to mine some Bitcoin. And like I said, I got, after a month's worth of running, I, I think I got like 10 cents. I think I used more electricity than 10 cents trying to run that. Um, the cloud mining, though, it the time I bought my contract, I paid... Um, well, I won't say that, but it, it's actually on track uh, over the, the life of the contract to actually pay off. So um, it's not something I advise now. I looked at it at the time, and if the prices had stayed at those levels, I would not have made anything. But with the run-up, it's actually helped me in that. Gotcha, gotcha. So... Is there a place that you specifically use to stay kind of up to date on this stuff, like a, a blog you follow or a newsletter or anything like that, or any resources you'd recommend? Man, I'm just looking at like uh, CoinDesk and some of the other places. Uh, Brandon put out a great thing that I'm going to start using that crypto scam. I thank you for thank him for sharing that. Um, that's really where I'm looking. I, I have um, uh, Google News set to, to Google. You know, information on the blockchain. Um, SAP has announced, um, uh, I think it was today, that they're going to offer um, blockchain as a service to companies in their cloud. So that's kind of a, a cool thing that I found out today. Um, mine are everywhere. Um, but Coindesk is probably the most um, 
the least hypey because there's definitely a lot of of, of hype in uh, in this news. I mean, you talk about <clears throat> yellow journalism and and in the blog space. I mean, it's all over the place in the coin coin space. So um, just I would look around and just make sure that it's a reputable source. Coindesk is one that I trust um, for the basics. Uh, there's a YouTube channel that I follow uh, called the BTC Sessions. Um, that's where I learned um, a lot about wallets, and in particular hardware wallets. And he's got some good instruction videos on how to use the different wallets there. Um, but in the news space, yeah, Coindesk and whatever I can find on Google News and uh, Brandon's resource. Yeah, I, I like CryptoScam because it, it kind of cuts through all of the, the hoopla to what's the most important stuff that happened this week. Uh, he's doing the work for us, I guess, is a way to look at that. And uh, I, I found it quite useful. I also guess that the one that I've really enjoyed since having him on is the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast network. Um, not everything on there is really great, but a lot of it is. Um, it, it, it tends to have a, a wide variety. I think there's like four or five different podcasts. So there's, you know, a few new ones every week. I, I don't think anybody on there is cranking them out daily or anything, but you know, you're getting a few every week and out of those, you might find one or two that are really interesting to you. I learned a lot about Swarm City, uh, from an interview with, uh, their, I guess one of their founders on there. Um, and uh, Vin Armani starting to talk a lot more about cryptocurrency too on his podcast. So those are like two resources I would recommend as well. But man, I, I enjoyed having you on today. I, I really appreciate the level of discussion here. I think it's it's more on par with what a lot of people can understand because we're not talking about you know rolling your own tokens or something like that. That unless you have some computer background, that really is over the head. So I appreciate you being with us today, Brian. Thanks for having me, Jack. I appreciate, appreciate it. All right, that was a great interview. I know I learned a lot. I hope everyone out there did as well. And I hope that we're we're beginning to demystify cryptocurrency. I think it. I, I, I'll tell you what I think about cryptocurrency. The reason it seems so mysterious is because it's actually so simple, and because our mind has been so conditioned to what is and is not money, and we are looking for government to tell us the truth when government always lies to us. And even those of us who know that, we instinctually still are doing it. We still are letting that get in our way. And the, the, the fundamental reality of any cryptocurrency is it only has value if it's, if it's exchangeable into other currencies, if people will take it as currency, uh, and if there's some sort of value within an economy that it is helping to perform transactions in. Because all it is is a ledger system. That's it. And that's all dollars are. It's a ledger system. There's, if you look at the way the government makes a dollar, it, it, it loans it into existence. It actually, it borrows it into existence. It'd be, it's even worse than loaning it. It borrows it into existence and incurs debt. And, and like that means that debt is considered an asset? If you're backing a currency with something, should it be backed with an asset? See how ridiculous it is? But yet there are people who believe more in the dollar than they believe in the new age of cryptocurrency. I'm not saying any individual cryptocurrency, but the concept as a whole. Cryptocurrencies are going to be developed, and I will tell you that I believe that 8 out of 10 will fail miserably. 8 out of 10 altcoins, whatever you want to call them, will fail miserably. 2 out of 10 will find some role in a somewhat long-term future. 1 in 50 will become something that is really accepted and has a, 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 a role to play that 
is not fulfilled by the others, or it fulfills that role the best, or it fills that gap first. And there's literally hundreds of these things being released. That means there's going to be quite a few winners. I'm not big on horse race gambling type stuff. I tend to look at things and say eventually, I see the, the need for this, this makes sense, and I'll, I'll put a few hundred bucks into it because I have that money to lose if necessary. And in the end, cryptocurrency has been pretty good to me. And, and I think it will continue to do so. I don't want anybody going out there, you know, putting their kids' college fund in this stuff or anything. But I think if you're not learning more about this right now and participating on some level, I think you're making a big mistake. Because one way or another, some form or format of these types of currencies are going to become the dominant way that business is transacted in the future, specifically outside of the control and realm of the state. And As much as we'd like to believe that people in general love the state, I think people have accepted the state almost like a Stockholm Syndrome. It seems like no matter who I'm talking to, from the ultimate conservative to the crazy liberal Democrat progressive socialist, in the end there's one thing that everybody can agree to. There's things the state does that are immoral. And it makes everybody open to the concept of writing the state out of the equation on some level. Well, here's the thing. If you get somebody writing the state out of the equation on any level, it's not so long before they figure out that maybe it'd be better to write them out at every level. And if you can get them to see that they can write the state out of the equation of monetary creation, monetary management, and monetary control, and at the same time write out the giant corporations and the big banks, do you understand how that's a universal message? And that's why it's going to work. That's why it is what I would call the lantern of libertarianism going forward. Because the avowed left hates who? The corporatocracy. They don't really hate the corporatocracy, they just think they do. What they actually hate is the oligarchy, and specifically the, the elite of the oligarchy themselves, which is the bankers. The bankers are truly the capitalists that the left hates. They don't really hate the guy that's a business owner. They just have been led to believe that's the case. When they say capitalism, what they're talking about is control of the capital. Cryptocurrency takes capitalism to its logical conclusion, an actual open market where capitalism is irrelevant because no one controls the currency because there's competing currencies and they each fill the role that's best and they're all decentralized. So there is no central bank. Got it? On the other side, the right always hates the state's overreach, including taxation, including interfering with privacy issues and things like that. Well, I think you can see how cryptocurrency plays into that as well. And that's why I think this is the wave of the future. Exactly how it's going to play out, who the winners and losers are going to be, we cannot know. But the more informed you are, the more able you are to adapt to change. And waves of change and shift are coming, as I keep telling you. On that note, if you like this show and the work that we do, remember you can always support our efforts by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. TSPAZ.com. That's where you'll find all of our reviews of Amazon items, including a link over to Amazon just to see their deals of the day. And uh, once you're over on Amazon from our page, anything that you buy will help support the work that we do. Uh, on the other hand, I always do put up Amazon reviews of the day as well. Like always, but you know, usually I do five a week. 
Uh, today I have a rather short review because I've included a video with it, and it's on banjo bulkhead fittings, and it's why I use them in my aquaponics systems. Specifically, it's because banjo fittings are very well-made, heavy-duty fittings. I've never seen one crack from freezing or something like that, uh, for example. Uh, they're just well-made. The other reason is because they're reverse thread. That means they are righty-loosey and lefty-tidy. This matters because when you're screwing things in and out of them inside your systems, it prevents you from accidentally loosening them up and screwing everything up. That's why that matters. I have links to all of the different, well, all of the sizes that I think are most beneficial to the hobbyist. Half inch, three quarter, one inch, one and a quarter inch, one and a half inch, two inch, and three inch in my review. If you have any need of bulkhead fittings in any of your designs, I really recommend these guys. I'll also tell you this. If you need one or two and you have a tractor supply near you, go to Subtractor Supply and buy them there. They will cost you less than they will on Amazon. Uh, if you're buying multiples, if you're buying, let's say, three, four, or five, it'll work out to where you'll actually save money buying them on Amazon.com. So just so you know that, if I needed two tomorrow, I'd go down to TSC. If I needed 12 tomorrow, I'd put an order on Amazon and get them shipped on Prime for free. Just full disclosure on, on how to maximize that one. I always try to advise you guys on the right stuff to buy when I'm doing Amazon reviews, but I also try to advise you of the right way to buy it if you can save some money doing it another way. I hope that... uh I hope that buys me some credibility with you guys. Anyway, um, so that brings us to our song of the day today. And uh, I was kind of surprised to see this one coming from John Adam. He's had some edgy stuff and some rock stuff. He's even got some rap music coming up in 2007. He said if I didn't like it, he would uh, he'd change it. I said, ah, hell no, man. I've never played a rap song. I'll play a rap song. Um, but uh, this one's not a rap song. This is from uh, Toby Keith. And it's it's a it's one of his better songs, I think. It's it's you know having some humor at yourself called "As Good as I Once Was." Here's what John Adams says about this song. He says Toby Keith is a well is well known in the military community for support of the troops and wounded vets. Toby Keith has a duality about him that appeals to the blind patriots as well as rebels that live life on their own terms. He's kind of a patriotic hippie redneck. The song makes takes a funny look at what every man over forty feels like at some point. A patriotic hippie redneck duck farmer? Something like that? Yeah. I'm a patriot to America, the nation, just not America, the state. Um, Toby Keith is a huge supporter of our troops. And Toby Keith is a case study in how you can object to a war, even when you are in country music, and not Dixie Chick yourself. Because when all that shit happened with the Dixie Chicks, and they asked Toby Keith about it, he said, I have real concerns and real questions about this war, and I'm not sure it's something we should be getting into. But the men that are sent there don't get to decide whether they go or not. Country music audience that the Dixie Chicks found to be so ignorant and intolerant were completely tolerant of that and really loved what Toby Keith did. I really did. And uh, I know people say, well, what about Red, White, and Blue? Well... You know, people can be for one war and against another. That song was written as we uh, you know, went into the war in Afghanistan, where at least Toby Keith was pretty sure the problem came from. His comments about not being comfortable with this war were a different war, Iraq. And I, I, the reason I think that's important is because I think we've been brainwashed into this country to believe that if our country's headed to war, that if you don't back the, the concept of going to war, you're not patriotic. Or you're wrong, or you're some kind of commie pinko or some stupid crap like that. 
If we judge war that way, isn't it just as foolish as judging guilt based on a person's skin color? Really? I mean, think about it. Shouldn't the fact that we're going to drop bombs on people, kill people, send people to a foreign land that don't really want to go there, have mothers and fathers learn uh, through emails or phone calls from commanders that their child is dead, have children come home to their parents who the parents had raised up and believed they were going to be on their own forever, now the parents are lifetime caregivers because the, the, the adult child has now been wounded in such a way they can no longer care for them. So don't you think since all that's going to happen, happen that every single war should be judged individually on its own merits as to whether or not those sacrifices are worth making? Well, I do. But I guess that's just crazy hippie redneck duck farmer talk. I don't know. Anyway, this song's actually a lot more fun than all that. Um, and I do think as someone in my mid-40s, I'm beginning to understand exactly what Toby's talking about here uh, with uh, you know aches, pains, and not quite being able to keep up with that, that former version of yourself. And I think we as men have a big problem here. We uh, we know what we were at 25, and we want to believe we're still that guy. But, as I've said before, time is an agent that works against all of us on some levels, and if we're doing the right things in our life, works for us and others. Well, when it comes to our physical capabilities, they do decline with age. That doesn't mean that they go to the bottom of the pile right away, but... I am not the man I was at 25, and I don't think any amount of hitting the gym could change that. I could be in better shape than I am, but I know the guy I was at 25. I know that guy with the six-pack abs that was in incredible shape and you know, probably was about 13% body fat or something like that. Uh, I know that guy, and, and I'm not him anymore. I'm okay with that most of the time. But just like Toby, I think I can be as good once as I ever was. I bet a lot of y'all feel that way, too. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or you something else. She said, I've seen you in here before. I said, I've been here a time or two. She said, hello, my name is Bobby Joe. Meet my twin sister, Betty Lou. And we're both feeling kind of wild tonight. You're the only cowboy in this place And if you're up for a rodeo I'll put a big Texas smile on your face I said, girls, I ain't as good as I once was I got a few years on me now But there was a time back in my prime When I could really lay it down If you need some love tonight, then I might have just enough. I ain't as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. I still hang out with my best friend, Dave. I've known him since we were kids at school Last night he had a few shots Got in a tight spot Hustling a game of pool With a couple of redneck boys One great big fat biker man I heard David yell across the room 
Hey, buddy, how about a helping hand? I said, Dave, I ain't as good as I once was. My, how the years have flown. But there was a time back in my prime when I could really hold my own. If you want to fight tonight, guess those boys don't look all that tough. I ain't as good as I once was, but I'm as good once as I ever was. I used to be hell on wheels back when I was a Says that you can't do this, boy. But my pride says, oh yes, you can. I ain't as good as I once was. That's just a cold hard truth. <laughs> I still throw a few back, talk a little smack when I'm feeling bulletproof. So don't double dog dare me now. I'd have to call your bluff I ain't as good as I once was But I'm as good once as I ever was May not be good as I once was But I'm as good once as I ever was